Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to read again verses 35 through 38. We'll be primarily in 36, 37, 38 this morning. But would you stand as I read God's word to us for us and hear the word of the Lord. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we do not have adequacy or competency on our own to do what we are entering into now. That apart from you, Lord Jesus, you have said apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot preach. We cannot hear well. But in faith and with you, all things are possible. So, Lord, as we come to your word and we ask that you would break open fresh bread here for us, that we would taste and see of the goodness of Jesus and that we would be compelled with compassion and love into your harvest. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, right now, would you, by your grace and in your mercy, speak. God above all, Speak, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So, Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. So last week we began a... What ended up being a, a two-parter, uh, so this is the second part, about shifts into or for the harvest. Shifts. What are seven? There's seven shifts that need to happen, that, that are happening in the ministry of Jesus, that are that something that we should emulate, that we should imitate, about how to orient ourselves for the harvest that God has. The harvest being that God has a people in this world who have yet to believe because they have yet to hear. That as long as we are here, there remains the work to do to bring the gospel to every tribe, to every tongue, to every people, and to every generation. And when that work is done, Jesus will come. So the work's not done. We are facing, truly, A task unfinished. It is an unfinished task. Ethnically across the world, there are so many affinity groups and ethnicities that have yet to be touched by the gospel. And there is a great harvest there. 
The problem is that many of them, the the places that remain untouched by the gospel, truly unreached. We're not just talking lost or unsaved or unresponsive to the gospel, but truly unreached without a gospel testimony, without the Bible in their language, many of them, without a church nearby. They're unreached for a reason that many of them it's very difficult. It might cost you your very life. But yet, not only are, is there a great harvest ethnically and geogra- geographically uh, across the world, but there is also a generational harvest. You consider many of you, some of you, consider your generation. Consider how you grew up and there was a pervasiveness maybe for, for some, maybe not for everybody, I don't want to presume, but there was a pervasiveness of Christianity or some some semblance of it. That if somebody were to ask you, even though you or your family might not have gone to church, there would have been a, uh, many people would have said, yes, I'm a Christian, even though they don't go to church. And that was probably part of the problem. And that if you were to look at the, the trends over the last, I mean, you don't even have to go that far, 30 years, 40 years, my lifetime. You can see that there has been a, there's a generational lostness that is growing. And I don't have time to kind of parse out what all that, why, where that came from and why. But there is a generational harvest. And the generation that's after you and the generation that's after them and the generation that's after them. And for some of you, when you look down and you see what's happening with, if you have any awareness of what's happening with, with kids who are in high school or in middle school or in elementary school, you must know that they're in dire need of the good news of Jesus. There's harvest all around us. There's a harvest of people who have never heard of Jesus or have never had the gospel clearly articulated to them in a way that they can understand it. Do you remember when Jesus tells the parable of the sower? He says there's a sower. Behold, a sower went out to sow and he's throwing seed everywhere. Seems like an irresponsible sower. He's throwing, it's, anyway, he's throwing seed everywhere. Some seed lands on the path, Right? And this is the gospel message that lands upon people's hearts and the Satan immediately comes and plucks it away. And this is, I pray against that every time, in my, at least in my head, I pray against that every time I preach. But also there's other seed that falls among the rocks and then among the thorns. And the, the one that falls among the rocks, it sprouts up quickly. And then it fades under pressure, under the light of the sun and the heat. There's seed that falls among the thorns. And it also begins to grow, but the thorns and the briars so constrict it that it never grows to fruitfulness. And then there's the seed that falls on good soil. And in explaining that parable to his disciples, Jesus points out that in some of the instances where Satan plucks that seed away, it's from those who have not understood it. That it's not enough just to say something. We have to say it in a way that people can understand it. Say it in a way that our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that the generation behind us can understand it. There's a harvest all around us. There are a harvest of people that thought they were Christians and yet are in fact not Christians. And, and I think in the South, this is probably the hardest group, to, and not just in the South, but I think this is, it's predominant in the South. 
We, we are the, as someone once said, I have no idea who, it uh, wasn't me, uh, I'm saying it today, but it's not original with me, uh, that we are the Christ-haunted South. Meaning that this once was, you know, I don't know how many cities claim to be the buckle of the Bible Belt, but there's a lot of buckles, apparently. You know, everybody, hey, we're in, we're in Columbia, South Carolina, we're the buckle. Atlanta, Georgia, we're the buckle. You know, Jackson, Mississippi, I'm the buckle. Birmingham, buckle. Louis, I heard somebody say Louisville. I was like, is that even in the South? <laughs> if I've offended Kentucky people, I'm sorry. I don't know. Um, apparently, they're the buckle. Everybody's a buckle. Everybody wants to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. But I'm going to tell you, that Bible Belt is old, worn out, dried, and breaking. There are so many people in our community. And, and if you want proof of this... This is a little bit of a diatribe that I don't want to spend too much on. But just go and I will send it to you. Our membership list. I could send you the membership list from when I first started, which was like, I don't know, seven, eight hundred people. We had people that were members of the church that lived in Antarctica. Not really, but they lived. It felt like it. They, they lived in Argentina, maybe Florida. It's all the same thing. It's all south. Uh, One's hot, one's cold. Y'all get over it. If you're from Florida, I'm sorry. Um, but that, that, that there's no way that you're actually a member of the church. Anyways. That we have lots of people in our community that have had some contact with this church. Or they've had some contact with Hillcrest or with Union or with Spears Creek. That they're, they went there for a season or they came to VBS there. Or they, they were a member of a Sunday school class or fill in the blank. And yet today... Their life looks nothing like Jesus. And if you were to go to them and say, are you a Christian? They would probably answer many of them in the affirmative. Many, many people in our culture in our day are beginning to get honest with themselves because the social pressure is gone. And they, they feel free to say no. Because the social advantage of church connection is gone. Which is a blessing, I believe. All this to say... There's harvest. And so while it would be an easy thing to look at our culture today and begin to wring our hands. And we should lament. We should lament at the degradation of a culture. Where there is collective insanity all around us. We can lament that while simultaneously saying there is huge, huge opportunity And by God's grace and in God's plan, you are here and now. So the harvest is ours to reach today. Some of the shifts into this harvest that we talked about last week that I'm, not, I'm just going to mention. From staying to going, from silent to speaking, from parts to persons. So that we, we stop sitting on our hands and we start going. We're no longer silent, but we start speaking the gospel as we live it out. And we don't treat people as components. We minister to whole persons. Because God made and saves whole people. And He will glorify whole people. So we want to minister to whole people in Jesus' name. So looking at verses 36 through 38, here are the next four. Some of them we're going to spend more time on, on than others. Um, but seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep 
without a shepherd. One, the, the, and a part of it, I just want to say it because it's fun to say, uh, but I have, there's a reason for it. But the Greek word for compassion is almost, it's impossible to bring in the, an English equivalent. You need about 15 words. Uh, that it's compassion, it's pity, it's sympathy. His, his heart goes out. And this is uh, R.T. France, who's a commentator on, uh, who's written numerous commentaries. He says, it is a verb which describes the Jesus of the gospel stories in a nutshell. Splankintsomai. Splankintsomai. And this is significant because you might think of compassion as something that you adopt from the outside. Um, but it, this, the word splankintsomai comes from the, the Greek word for your guts. That he was moved and his, his guts went out to him. His guts went out to the crowd that this is not something that Jesus adopts from the outside, but it arises from the core of his being. It is a powerful emotional experience for the incarnate Jesus that shows up over and over in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 14, verse 14, chapter 15, verse 32, chapter 18, verse 27, chapter 20, verse 34. This describes Matthew's depiction of the incarnate Christ. That he go, his heart goes out to them. That his guts are moved for this crowd. I want you to consider how too often Christians approach the sea of humanity. Those who might be far from God and yet in our communities. Those who might be uh, purporting or supporting political ideologies that are, you think are abominable. Those who are living in types of lifestyles that you believe in, probably are right, that they're sinful. What is your, how, how, what is your posture to them? What, 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 what is the first thing that happens in your heart when you hear that there's a gay pride parade downtown? Usually it's some sort of criticism. That we have this natural impulse to point out that that's outside of God's design and in fact it's a sinful lifestyle. No disagreement. No disagreement from me, no disagreement from Scripture. You would have no disagreement from Jesus. But our first response cannot be the stone throwing. That cannot be our first response. Because that's not Jesus' first response. You can be true. But we must speak the truth in love. Now, you can speak the truth in love, and the one to whom you are speaking may not receive it that way, but your heart has to be in the right place. Do our guts move out to those who are far from God? Those who are in shackles to sin and death? Or are we the ones... Who want to heap up criticism upon them. Who want to throw the stones. Who want to see them gone. Or do we love them? 
Even though they are far out of bounds from what God designed. Even though they are at re- they are, their hearts are rebellious against the God who had made them. Even though they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for creation. Even though they are heaping up wrath for themselves. That is not our job to dump out wrath. Amen. We are not wrath distributors. We have to be grace distributors. Let the Holy Spirit do His job. He is the one who convicts of sin. I am not telling you to compromise on the truth. I'm not telling you to keep your mouth shut where God is clear that marriage is for one man and one woman for life. But I am saying that the status and the posture of your heart matters immensely. And if we're going to see people transformed by the power of the gospel, because remember, we're not ashamed that we're going to be like Paul. We're not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And fill in whatever categories you want there. But there's only one gospel, and it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And that means when people believe, you don't stay the same. But we must be marked, not by criticism, but by compassion. Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. This idea is a, is a repetitive idea. I'm only going to say dominant motif in the Old Testament, but it's a clear motif in the Old Testament. If you're looking somewhere like Ezekiel chapter 34, the whole chapter, I was tempted to read the whole chapter to you, but we're not going to do that today. Um, But the whole chapter, but let me read just a couple verses at the beginning of Ezekiel 34. Before I lose my place here. Then the word, this is Ezekiel 34 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought out the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. So the imagery here is that the shepherds of Israel, who were the the leaders, whether they be in Israel, it didn't matter. The religious leaders, the political leaders, they're all described as shepherds who are there for the benefit of God's people. And they had abdicated their post in the sense that they began, rather than shepherding the flock, they began to prey on the flock. They They didn't strengthen the sick. They didn't heal the diseased, the broken they didn't bound up, they did not bring back the scattered. They were there for themselves. And there was no one to search or to seek for them. 
And those of you who have been reading your Bible, there should be some, some, some dings going off here. There was no one to search or to seek for them. Do you remember the story of Jesus? That Jesus tells us, it's in several of the Gospels. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 18. It's also in Luke chapter 15. You know Luke chapter 15 for the prodigal son. But the first story, the first little picture that J- Jesus gives is the one who goes, who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Or maybe you remember from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus has this encounter with Zacchaeus, the wee little Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree. And he says, salvation is coming to your house for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. There was no one to search or to seek for them. There was a failure in the shepherds of Israel. And so what does the Lord say? Ezekiel 34 verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. That the Lord himself says, I will take it upon myself to rescue my people. And what does he do? The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He comes on a divine rescue mission to save his people. And God forbid that we become like the shepherds of Israel who abdicate our work given to us by the good shepherd to gather and to protect those who are lost. He has compassion on them because they are distressed and dispirited. They're oppressed and scattered. They are burdened. Have you considered the state? And perhaps you're a Christian today and you've been a Christian for a long time. You might not remember what it was to live in the dark. And maybe you're, you, you're, you've said all the right things and you've never actually made that step from darkness into light. And you've just been going through the motions. I would encourage you to examine your heart now before the Lord and say, have I been born again? Have I experienced the love of Jesus? Have I known what it is to have my sins forgiven? To know that I once was dead, but now I live. Have you ever had that that spark of new life? Has God ever transferred you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of His beloved Son? Or did you write your name on a card? Did you get wet one time, prayed a prayer, and nothing ever changed? That is a perilous position to be in. Examine our lives. If they're distressed and they're dispirited, if there's oppression. Have you remember, you remember um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that, the, that Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelievers. So just consider those who are wandering their way today and they're raising a clenched fist at the God of heaven. Some of them quite literally. They're held in slavery. 
They wear shackles that are self-made. And as they resist the God in whom we live and move and have our being, their hearts grow harder and colder and they become more and more a child of hell every day. More and more are they experiencing the wrath of God that is being poured out today for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 They are under the wrath of God today. They are experiencing the wrath of God today and they are storing up wrath in the future. Ought not our hearts be broken? We who know. We know that there's wrath coming. We have a glimpse of it in the Scriptures. And it should cause us to shudder and tremble. We ourselves before the fear of the Lord. And we should tremble for those who are far from God. And yet too often, Christians sleepwalk. I'm I'm guilty too. And we get so defensive when someone resists God as it's a surprise that lost people act like lost people. Yes, hold them to the standard of God's law so that they can see their need for the gospel. But don't be surprised or shocked or defensive. You're on the winning side. Your God reigns. And so we should be free not to be defensive and critical and throwing stones, hoping to to distract from our own inadequacies, but we should be able to show out compassion because we are fully adequate, we're fully accepted in the gospel of Jesus. We've been set free and we walk in the light and not in the darkness. We should be able to show compassion and have our inward persons move. That when we see people rail against Jesus, we should have tears pour down our cheeks. Because this is who we see in Jesus. And even more so. I was talking to Sherman about this before church. Such were some of you. Everyone here. Everyone here. Without an exception, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Everyone here has at some point, you have been the one wielding the fist, defying God, choosing yourself, living your own way. You are the man or the woman. None of us can sit on a pedestal. You have what you have in Jesus because you've been saved by grace and grace alone. You're not better than the Islamic fundamentalists. You're not better than the one who walks down the street with a gay pride flag. You have just received grace. And maybe if they would hear and if they would see true love, maybe they would receive the grace that you had received also. God loves you freely and wholly. And if we believed what, we, what the Bible says about lost people, and if we believed what the Bible says about us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of my favorite 
passages. I'm trying not to turn this into like an eight part series, but let it be whatever it's going to be. One of my favorite passages is where Jesus is, is teaching his disciples and he's telling them to love. You must love your enemies. We all know that you should. You know, I assume you've heard something like that. Jesus says, love your enemies. But there's a beautiful part after that where he says, love your enemies so that you will be like your father in heaven. The implication being that he has loved his enemies. And he has made through the gospel of Jesus, God makes his enemies his friends. That's the power of the gospel. Don't forget that the gospel transforms lives. And we must be able to show compassion because we have been we have received that compassion. Proud people criticize people. But the gospel humbles us. Humbled people extend compassion. We must move from criticism to compassion. We must move from scarcity to plenty. Then he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Too often we act like there are, you know, narrow is the way that leads to life and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Jesus said that. And somehow we believe that only a few people are going to be saved. There are some heretical cults that will tell you that it's only like 144,000 because they they got an F in hermeneutics. That means the interpretation of the Bible. They, They failed that part. But that there are, it's not just like one or two people, but the harvest is plentiful. And you know, do you know, do you know, do you know how the shepherd calls his sheep home? Seriously, I know you're not, none of you are shepherds so far as I know. Some of you might have goats or something. That's close. It's the wrong, that's the left side in Matthew chapter 25. You should get some sheep. You know how a shepherd calls his sheep home? It's not a trick question. What does Jesus say? I'm the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. The sheep are called home by the voice of God. And so if the harvest is plentiful, there are numerous flock that have numerous sheep that have yet to be called into God's flock. You know how they're going to be called home? Not by a sunrise, not by a sunset, not by something like, you know, here look at this wonderful iguana, I don't know. Look at some the wonders of nature. They're called home by the voice of the shepherd. They're called home by the message of the gospel. So if the, if the harvest is plentiful, what does that mean? We have to move from silence to speaking so that the sheep come home. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They're not going to have a gospel to believe in if they don't hear it. And it is not up to us. It is not up to us. It is not up to us to say, this person gets to hear because I like the way they smell. This person gets to hear because they drive this nice car. This person gets to hear because they look like me, they sound like me, they do all the cool stuff that I like to do. But those other people, they don't get to hear. That's not your job. The sower went out to sow. 
fling that seed, y'all. Here's the message of the gospel. If it's awkward, it's awkward. If it's weird, it's weird. Jesus is worth it and so is their soul. And you'll get better at it. Just try this. Just try this. Has anyone ever told you, has anyone told you today that God loved you? It's a great intro. You've just broken all the ice barriers. You're a, you're, you're a penguin on ice at that point. It's all awkward from there on out. But you got it. Because there are plenty of people who are waiting to hear. They're in seasons of their life that they're waiting to hear. They might not know that they're waiting to hear this, but they're waiting to hear this. They're waiting to hear that all of their works, all of their effort, all of their brokenness, it it rises from their sin, but it's healed in Jesus who will make them whole. He's not going to make their lives a bed of roses, but He's going to be with them. He will save them. He will change them. He will walk with them. He will give them His self and His Spirit. He will bring them into a new family that they've never known before, that God is able They've been waiting to hear it. We must move. Let's keep going. Verse 38. We're we're praying for workers because there's a lot of work to do. Therefore, beseech or plead or pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As we see the great work that's needed before us, where we see people who are lost and they're living like lost people, and they're bringing the world like lost people. De- anyway, and they're and they're headed towards eternal destruction, eternal wrath, separated from the from the presence of God. What should we do? I've been in too many pastors' meetings where our first first thing we do is that we start plotting. Here's our strategy. Here's the strategy for renewing your church. Here's your strategy for planting a church. Here's your strategy for this. Here's your plan for this. That's all fine. But we have to go to God. We move from plotting to prayer. It doesn't mean that plotting and planning are evil, but plotting and planning without prayer are evil. Because we can't do this work on our own. We can't do the work that God has given us on our own. We must be people of prayer, even, even, even when the world seems to be mounting against us like Daniel chapter six. And then finally, send workers into his harvest. The harvest is external to us and it belongs to God. It is external to us. And it belongs to God. So we must move from com- competition to cooperation. We must move Christian church. We must move from competition to cooperation. This needs to be a sermon on its own, but it can't be. So this is where we are. We need to rejoice when Jesus is preached, when the gospel is shared by whoever is preaching it and whoever is sharing it. There are plenty of people and there are more and more people that are moving into our community that need Jesus. We need to be desperately praying that God would raise up and renew and bring awakening to our church. That he would renew and bring awakening to Hillcrest and to Union and to Harmony and Spears Creek and Fort Clark and Green Hill and uh, the Father's House International of Religious Church over there and the, and the Church of God and the church plant. We don't need to be scared and comp- com- competing against anybody. That's, 
that's not the posture we can have in this world. If we're going to see every man, woman, and child with repeated opportunities to hear, see, and believe in Jesus, it's going to take more than us. It's going to take more than us if three out of four every of three out of four South Carolinians are not a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. It's going to take more than us. And if we're looking to the harvest, we're looking to the kingdom. And so we cannot be people marked by competition. You cannot be like dogs at the dog park going around and spraying your post saying, don't come around here. I've heard that junk too. I've been in Elgin eight years now and I've heard it and I've seen it enough. I don't care what they do. We will not be those people. If there's a ministry that a church is doing and somebody can be helped by it, send them on. If something good's happening somewhere else, we're not going to tear it down. We're going to say, the Lord bless it. We're going to pray that God might bring renewal to us and to them and to see His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, beginning in us, beginning in our church, and beginning in our community. Every man, woman, and child, every life of our community means that every Christian, all hands on deck and raise up more and send them out, Lord God. May that be our posture. For the Lord is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd and he has sheep that have yet to come in. May our hearts and our guts and everything we have go out to them. Because darkness is real. Separation from from God is awful. The wrath of God is miserable. And eternity in hell will be worse. Would our hearts move as Jesus? And if you are here today and you've begun to say, well, Jacob, I don't don't know. I I feel distressed and dispirited. I feel oppressed and scattered. I I I don't have this vital relationship with God. It's very cold. It's very mechanical. I show up and I do this and I give my money and I sit in the pew and then I, I have my, this is my Jesus moment. And then I live my life the way that I want to the rest of the days of the week. I'm not here to pronounce you in or out. I'm saying, examine yourselves. I know that the rain kind of filters out a lot of people that might not normally be here. So I speak to you and I say, examine your heart. To see whether or not you're in the faith. Not just did you do something a long time ago, but what does Jesus mean to you today? Is he the Lord of your morning? Is he the Lord of your work and of your family? And maybe it's just that this is just an invitation for for you to grow up in, in, in Christ a little bit. But maybe it's the invitation to come and be made alive for the very first time. Quit the playing and quit the games and call out to Christ to save you. Because He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's good. And everyone who comes to Him, He will certainly not cast out. So come. Come. Let me pray. Lord, we trust you, we look to you, we hope in you. 
Would you move us to be not just not what we've always been, but more and more, more and more and more and more agents and an outpost, an embassy of your kingdom in this world. That we would point every life to Christ for every life matters. That we would declare the rights and the reign of Christ over every area of life. And that, Lord, if there are some here who, I don't know why I feel burdened, who, who've, who've, been, who've said there's a Christian, they might have been baptized, and, and yet right now your spirit is convicting them that that might not be true. Lord, give them grace to step out. And even if it's right now during the invitation that they would come and talk to me, or maybe, maybe later they want to email me, they want to call, they want to set up an appointment, they want to just drop by. We could talk about their heart. Would you do that work amongst us? Would you give us grace to see people not like we've always seen them, but that we would see them as you see them? With compassion and with love. Not compromising, but believing in the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. So give us grace as we respond, as we consider the steps that you would have for us. Would you lead us? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together and respond?